Good morning, everyone. It's always, it always feels a little bit strange how we have to finish the worship set and then interrupt it. And I, I kind of had to come up here and then we get to worship again. But bear with me, I ask. Um, how's everybody doing? Okay. Let me put, Mike, I'm putting your things over here. Sorry. <laughs> We're so, can I just say before we, we go on, we're so grateful. I was just thinking there in worship how being an international church, we're coming from all over the place. And I was thinking today was Mike's first time leading worship here with us. And give him a round of applause. And more than his, more than his skill, we applaud the willingness to serve. We applaud the, his heart to say yes to God, just use me wherever. And I was thinking, how beautiful is it that God would bring Mike from the U.S. and then Leanne, who will be speaking with me in a little while, all the way from Australia and everybody. And he's just bringing people from the Philippines who are serving in breakfast, Hazel and Blessing from Nigeria, and just bringing people from all over the place so that we could gather here today, this morning together with one heart, worshiping one God. There's just something so beautiful about that. And I know that I've said this before, but it's just, it doesn't stop amazing me. Um, but this morning, I better get to what I'm actually going to speak about. Who here is competitive? Wow, not, okay. Be honest, who's competitive, okay. Um, those of you who know me, you will know that I'm very competitive. So much so that this week I was telling the team, we were sitting down at work, and I was saying, I really need to start drinking more water. I just, I can't get myself to drink more water. And instead of them giving me, like, advice of, you should have this bottle, or you should try this technique, Jode and Jamil just said, hey, okay, Gabby, why don't we make it a competition? Bam, I'm in. <laughs> So we made a whole system. Tomorrow we'll put the system in place. Whoever drinks most water will get a paid lunch by the end of the week. So I'm pretty sure that with this component of competition <laughs> that I will be drinking more water. Um, but don't get me wrong and don't be fooled. Most people think that I am the most competitive in the house. But I would like to argue this morning that Ruben actually is the most competitive in our home. And he's so competitive that because he hates losing so much, he would rather not even participate at the risk of losing. So I think you'll agree with me that that's actually being more competitive. But I've had my fair share of losing in my life. And, and as I tell some stories this morning, I'm sure that you'll think of stories in your own life. But one of my most memorable losses was at Riverside Park in front of the Mississippi River in the United States. I had gone, I was 16, and I was living in the U.S. in Minnesota, where it's freezing. Who, who knows Minnesota or has been to Minnesota? There you go, all my Americans. <laughs> um, and I was living there as an exchange student. And when winter came, I decided, well, this is a year of all things new, so I'm going to join the ski team. Um, I joined the Nordic ski team, which basically is cross-country. I had done cross-country in Portugal. So instead of running, I would just be sliding. What could be so hard about that? And so I joined the ski team, and here I am, Riverside Park. It's the first race of the year of the championship. And I'm sitting there. They count one, two, three, or three, two, ones. The gunshot goes off, and we're off. Now, keep in mind that I had just finished. There I am. You can uh, take it off after. <laughs> just uh, give you a visual. Um, <laughs> but there I am, 
And I need you to keep in mind that we had just finished the soccer season in the fall, which being a European in the US, it had been a very successful four months for me. People knew me, I had been in a few newspapers, so my confidence was pretty high at this point. And never mind that I was in a race with people who had been skiing since they were practically two, uh, never mind that they had done this for a lot longer, I was confident in my athletic skills that I had a chance. Now also keep in mind that before going to the US, I had never seen snow fall in my entire life. I had never been in that kind of temperature. And so I go, but I am so competitive that I go for the first lap. I hit the second lap. Now I remember hitting the third lap out of like 15 laps, and all of a sudden I can't breathe. I can't, I can't feel my body anymore. I, I didn't understand, what I didn't know was that physical activity in negative 20 degree weather is not quite the same as your average winter day in Portugal. And so I remember hitting that third lap, and as I hit the uphill, in between gasping for air, and now tears flowing down my face, I just jumped to the side and I quit. And this for me, I mean, I was bawling. I remember I didn't even wait for the, for the race to finish. I just grabbed my stuff and I ran home. My home was quite close to that park. And I just went home and I wanted to be alone. I felt like the biggest loser ever. <laughs> I never quit a competition. And so, forward a few months and the next year I was back home and I decided, you know what, I'm gonna go back to what I know. And so I went back to playing soccer. <laughs> now on this particular tournament, I had been the top scorer in the tournament and my team had gotten to the final. Now the final was gonna be at the national stadium in Portugal, near Jamor, and it was gonna be televised on national TV and the winning team would go to Sweden and participate in a championship there. And so here we are, we get to the final. And it was a tough match, it was against Athletic Madrid, so it might as well have just been Portugal against Spain. It was very, very tense, the pressure was on, the match went on, and it was 0-0. So we went to extra time, again, 0-0. And what happens after that, you get to penalties. And I remember gathering my team, it was 11 aside, and I gathered the whole team together. And I wasn't even the captain, but I'm giving this huge speech to the team about how don't worry about it, penalties tend to be unfair. Don't worry, we've gotten this far together. We win together, we lose together. <coughs> the team is kind of nervous, and uh, nobody wanted to go first, so me, being confident in my skills, <laughs> I decide to go first, national TV, national stadium, winner takes it all, I shoot the penalty, I miss, we lose the game, we lose the, champ we lose the tournament, and that's it. And all the words that I had just said to my team, inspiring them and saying, hey, don't worry about it, just went out the window, I felt like the biggest loser ever. <laughs> Have you ever failed? Have you ever had this feeling of failing, of just wishing like you could go back and maybe you can't relate to sports so much? But have you ever failed in something that no matter how hard you tried, you end up losing? And Theodore Roosevelt, I think, said it. I think it's up there. Oh, that picture's still up there, man. Theodore Roosevelt said, the only man who never makes a mistake is a man who never does anything. And so if you've ever tried doing anything in your life, I'm sure that you'll have countless stories of failing just like me. Now some stories like these are funny to remember, 
They're, they're, they're situations that we look back and perhaps we can see how ridiculous it was. Or we just, we, we think it's silly how the circumstance ended up. And I'm one of the only people in the country that can say I missed a penalty in the national stadium on a final. So I'm kind of proud of that these days. <laughs> but other failures are not funny. Other failures, they leave a mark in our lives. Other failures, they still hurt. And this morning, I want to share something that marked my life. And in a way, it still hurts. This is a picture of me and my grandmother. It's my dad's mom. And um, me and my grandmother were very close. Now, I'm really not going to cry as I... <sighs> my grandmother and I were very close. And she, for most of my life, she lived in South Africa. They lived 45 years in South Africa until finally they moved to Portugal. But when they moved to Portugal, I moved to the US. And after the US, I moved to the UK. And so while she was here for most of the, of the time, I was away. And finally, I came back to Portugal. And now we could, we could be together. We could live in the same country. And we had a really special bond because I'm the youngest in the family. And so I was kind of like the family clown since I was little. And we would just laugh, just spend time laughing and laughing. And so for the first time, finally, we could live in the same country and be together. But then my life got busy. And I had met Ruben. Soon we got engaged. We were that same year we were going to get married. I was starting the Lisbon Project, which was going to open that year. We were going to, in, in the space of one month, we were going to inaugurate the church, inaugurate the Lisbon Project, and get married. And so that year, I was really busy. <coughs> and I remember my grandma would call all the time. And, and because I was so busy, I, I started rejecting the calls. I don't know about your grandparents, but Portuguese grandparents, they can talk. <laughs> And so my grandma would, for probably the first five minutes of the call would be how I didn't answer the other calls. And then the remaining time would be about all the different um, uh, pains and, and illnesses that she had and how she went to this doctor and that doctor. And so because I was so busy, I started just not answering the calls. And I would spend time with her when I could, but for most of the time, she would call me and I would reject it. And then in March of that year, my grandma passed away. And I remember at the funeral, just crying and crying and crying, not just because I missed her, but because I felt like I had failed her, because I felt like I had failed as a granddaughter. When she needed me and when, when, she, when she could have finally had time with me, I didn't quite have the time. And I just wish, I just had this feeling. And, and I remember being in the, the months that followed the funeral, just having this biggest pain in my heart of just, I wish I could go back. I wish I could do things differently. I wish that I could have another chance. And so some failures, they hurt. And they leave a mark. And I don't know about you. I don't know what kind of failures you've had in your life. If maybe you failed in a relationship, thank you. Or maybe you failed at a job, or maybe you failed in your education, or maybe you failed someone that you love. But some failures, they stop being just about the mistake that we made, and, and it starts being about who we are. It, it stops being about just something that we messed up, and it starts being about how because of that mistake, now we're no longer qualified for, or now we don't feel any longer worthy of. 
some mistakes and some failures, they go real deep. And today we're going to continue our face-to-face message series. And, and I'm anytime that we do a, a New Testament or a message series based on the New Testament, at some point I will probably speak about Peter. Now this was interesting because Leanne was supposed to preach this week, but then on Tuesday I said, don't worry about it, I'll preach this week, you preach next week. And so I started uh, studying for the message, and on Saturday morning I told Ruben, hey, guess what, okay, I'm going to preach on Peter. And he goes, no, Leanne's preaching on Peter next week. And so I spoke to Leanne and I said, you know what, God must really want to speak this message this week, so why don't I start it? And then Leanne will preach with me and she'll do the second part. So basically, what I want to do this morning is I want to set up the context of this conversation. There's a breakfast between Peter and Jesus and it's a powerful face-to-face encounter. And I just want to give us the context of that conversation so when Leanne comes up, what she says will make sense. So Peter and Jesus... For those of you who know anything about Peter, you know that they were close friends. Peter loved Jesus, and I love him because I love this character in the Bible because he's so relatable, at least to me. (laughs) He's very impulsive, and he's loud about his emotions. He's loud about his love for Jesus. He had lived three very intense years with Jesus. He was the one that had walked on water. He had seen Jesus preach and heal and teach. They were close friends so much that the night before Jesus is arrested, when they'd finished having dinner, Jesus starts explaining about how he's going to have to die. And Peter just kind of interrupts him and he says, no, even if everyone else deserts you, I will never desert you. And Jesus says, truly, I tell you, This very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. No, Peter insisted. Even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And all the other disciples vow the same. Have you ever loved someone so much that you are sure that if the time came, you would die for them? Peter was so sure. He loved Jesus so much. He was so passionate about his love for Jesus that he says, no matter what happens, Jesus, I'm going down with you. And yet we know how the story goes. We know what happens next. The Bible says that when Jesus was arrested, he was taken to the high priest's home. And it says that Peter followed at a distance. In the midst of all that chaos, it says, he went in and sat with the guards and waited to see how it would all end. And I can imagine on that night, it was just chaotic. There was loads of people there, and everybody's kind of just waiting to see what happens. And the Bible says that a girl turns to Peter and says, hey, I know you were with with him. And he says, no, I I don't know what you're talking about. And then a little while longer, another girl turns to him and says, no, I'm sure, I'm sure that you know Jesus. And he says, at this point, he doesn't even just say, I don't know what you're talking about. He completely rejects that he ever even knew Jesus. He says, I don't know the man. Just leave me alone. And he's starting to feel scared. And he's starting to feel overwhelmed and anxious and scared for his life. And then the Bible says that some other bystanders say, no, I know by your accent that you're from Galilee. I know that you're one of them. And at this point, the Gospel of Matthew says that Peter even curses. In modern day, Peter would basically be saying, I don't effing know Jesus. He's angry. And he completely rejects having even known him. The Bible says in Luke 22, 
At once, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. The Lord turned around and looked straight at Peter. And Peter remembered that the Lord had said to him, before the rooster crows tonight, you will say three times that you don't know me. Peter went out and he wept bitterly. You see, one thing is failing at something. Another thing is failing someone. And yet another thing is failing the Son of God himself. God who is perfect, God who is righteous, God who is holy, whose standards are so high. And the Bible says that in that moment, Jesus looked at Peter. I can only imagine what that look was like. And I'm sure as we read the end of the story, I'm sure that Peter misinterpreted that look. But can you imagine? At this point, Jesus is probably bruised and hurt and facing certain death. Peter remembers the boldness that he had the night before and all those words and all those promises that he had made. And now he's just overwhelmed with shame and with regret and with guilt, with so much guilt that he doesn't even know what to do with it. He failed and he runs and he weeps. Peter runs. I don't know about you, but I feel like it's a pretty human tendency to run. We run when we're overwhelmed. We run when we're scared. We run when we're guilty. Peter runs and he weeps. Peter's failure wasn't a silly mistake. It wasn't a funny story that he could tell people. It defined his identity. The boldness he had before was gone. All those bold promises that he had made before were now broken. He'd left his whole life behind for this. He'd left his whole life behind for Jesus. And now the one thing that he was supposed to live for, the one purpose that, the one person that he was supposed to be committed to, he deserted him. How could God possibly use him now? How could God possibly even want to even look at him, even want to even have relationship with him after this huge betrayal? And the gravitational pull of failure is usually isolation. And so he runs and he cries. And what if the story ended there? What if the story ended in John chapter 20? And I was thinking about this and how many Christians' lives or how many Christians' relationships with God don't end there. They're going to church. Everything is going well. They're, they're following. They're obeying. And then one day they mess up. And they mess up big. And they don't know what to do with their guilt. And they don't know what to do with their regret. That they just run. I've had so many conversations with people. They say, hey, what do you do? And I say, well, I, I work at the Lisbon Project. My husband and I, we lead a church. Oh, church. Yeah, I used to go to church. And because they messed up, their story ends there. All the Gospels, they record Peter denying Jesus, but only one of them tells us what happens next. And maybe some of you today, maybe you're feeling like your story ended, or maybe you don't feel that way, but people in your life feel that way. Not all messages might be for you, but maybe they are for people in your life that you need to hear this so that you can bring them good news. How many people in your life may be messed up, they ran away, they're weeping bitterly, and they don't know that the story has a restoration that the story has a redemptive element, that God doesn't see the end of the story there. So I'm going to invite Leanne to come up, and she's going to tell us what happens next. What happens to this incredible man of God 
that messes up so badly, that feels so ashamed, that feels so guilty, how can God possibly make something out of that? Here we go. So here we have Peter and he's run away. He's not just having a bad day. His whole world is falling apart and it's about to get worse. You see, what he, he's, while he's run away, he's thinking about that look that Jesus gave him, that look that said, I know you've denied me three times, or at least that's how he's interpreted it. That's what he remembers right now. He can remember, you know, when you run away and you've done something wrong, you think things over, you play the tape again, the videotape in your mind again of what happened. He's going to be thinking about all the things that just went wrong. He's going to be thinking about how just before the, um, the um, soldiers came to arrest Jesus and take him away, that he was in a garden and he cut the, the ear of a soldier off. And Jesus had to tell him, Peter, that's not the way we do things. Mistake number one. Then he denies Jesus. Mistake number two. Denies him again. Number three. Number four. They're mounting up. Jesus, uh, Peter is feeling pretty miserable right now. He's playing this videotape in his mind. And what's more than that? His best friend has just been pulled away by the soldiers. You know, this is the background of this. It's not just disappointment that's going on. It's the whole background of the story. His life is falling apart. Jesus has just been taken by soldiers. Now, and then Jesus gets dragged before Pilate and the crowd starts yelling, crucify him, crucify him. These are people that are meant to love Jesus. These are people from his camp, Pharisees, Sadducees, people from the church, and they're yelling, crucify him. Can you imagine how Peter felt watching that? And I've just let him down. And then it gets worse. They take Jesus. They put this crown of thorns in his head. They openly humiliate him. They strip his clothes. They beat him. And all Peter can think about is, wow, he really needed me now and I've let him down. And then it gets worse. They hang Jesus on a cross. They torture him. They humiliate him. They hang him like a criminal. Everyone is letting Jesus down. And Peter knows he did too. And then what's worse, Jesus died. Now remember, Peter doesn't know the the rest of the story. All he knows right now is Jesus died. And the last thing that happened was that he denied him and Jesus knew. How would you feel if someone really, really close to you, it was the last thing you said, like Gabby was saying, you know, you live with regret and there's nothing that you can do about it now. Jesus is gone. Can you imagine how Peter felt in that moment? You know, there was no way to say sorry. There was no way to make amends, no way to rectify the solution. Jesus was dead 
and that last communication was that look. So Peter was in this, this state. As you read through the whole story of the gospel, we don't know where Jesus was at that time. Uh, his name isn't mentioned anymore after that denial. He's off, I'm sure he's off hiding somewhere and he's, um, he's replaying the video in his mind of everything that's happened and he's trying to work things out. But he can't. He's just stuck there. There's nothing he can do. The next time we see Peter is when uh, there's word that Jesus' tomb is empty. The women go there, they find that the tomb is empty and Jesus, um, and Jesus isn't there. They come back and tell Peter. And Peter, you know, he's so desperate to make amends. Like he wants this relationship restored that he can't restore. You know, it says in Luke 24, 12, it says, Peter jumped to his feet and ran to the tomb. You know, he ran like he wanted to meet with Jesus straight away. He jumped and he ran to the tomb. You can see the desperation that's going on in him. He wants to know what's happening. He wants to, 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 to figure it out. But then, again, he doesn't know what he's doing, so he just goes back to everything. It's kind of like the last three years of his life as he's sitting there thinking, he's thinking about... Those last three years of his life, you know, that moment where, Je where he was out fishing and Jesus said, come follow me. And he left everything and followed him. And then all of the times on the road and then all of the times where he saw miracles and all of the times where he saw these things, uh, the, these amazing things that Jesus did and that he was friends with him and he was so close to him and yet he's let him down. So Peter does what most of us do when we're when we feel like a failure. We we write ourselves off and we go, well, I'm no good at that anymore, and we just go back to whatever we were before. That's what we do, isn't it? When we fail, we go, oh well, I've mucked that up. It's no good anymore. I'll just go back to what I did before. So if we look in John 21 verse 3. Uh, Simon's with the disciples and what's he say? He says, I'm going fishing. Exactly where Jesus found him in the first place. He's gone way back. It's like those three years meant nothing because he's made a mistake, he's wiped himself off and he's like, that's it, I'm going fishing. Everyone else said, okay, well, we're going with you because they couldn't think about what to do either. They were all, all the other disciples were just as upset. I'm going fishing. So they went out and got in a boat and they caught nothing that night. Then the disciple um, that Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the master because he was on the beach. He says, we're going with you. They went out and got in the boat and they caught nothing that night. But when the sun came up, Jesus was standing on the beach, but they didn't recognise him. Jesus spoke to them, good morning, did you catch anything for breakfast? And they answered no. And he said, throw the net off the right side of the boat and see what happens. And they did what he said. And then all of a sudden there were so many fish in it, they weren't strong enough to pull it in. And then... 
Then the disciple that Jesus loved, that's John who's writing this gospel. He always refers to him as the disciple that loved Jesus, said to Peter, it's the master. And when Simon Peter realised that it was the master, he threw on some clothes, for he was stripped for work and dove into the sea. Now, don't you think that's funny? Normally, when you're about to go swimming, you take clothes off. But here we see Peter putting clothes on. That happened another time in the Bible, didn't it? If you go all the way back to Genesis with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, when they had failed God, when they had um, eaten from the tree and had done the wrong thing, they immediately started covering up. And that's what we do when we feel failure. We cover up. We don't want other people to see our failure. And I think this is a significant moment that um, Peter threw on clothes because he wanted to cover up. He was feeling ashamed and he couldn't just come to Jesus as he was. He had to put on airs or put on masks um, or pretend to be something that he wasn't. So he threw on some clothes, but in his desperation, he just jumped into the water because this relationship, this was his chance to solve it. If Jesus was there, Peter was going to be there. This is his chance to do something about it. The other disciples came in by boat and they weren't far from land and a 100, 100 yards or so. So pulling along the net of full pulling along the net full of fish. When they got out of the boat, they saw a fire laid with fish and bread cooking on it. So here is Jesus offering a meal to Peter, which is really interesting because if you think back to when Jesus told Peter that he was going to deny him, it was at the Last Supper. It was also at a meal. And it's like Jesus is recreating this whole story um, that feels the same, um, that um, has the same elements in it, and he's recreating the whole story. Um, Again, it's almost like a complete second chance. And so they're at a meal together. When you are ashamed, when you are a failure... Jesus comes looking for you. Jesus came looking for Peter at this moment. You know, God makes the first move and he, it's almost like he's chasing you down. Have you ever felt that when you've failed God and God's there? It's like he chases you down. You're running away and it's like he's chasing you and you're like, I don't, I don't want to deal with you right now. Like, I just want to run away. I just want to pretend like it didn't happen. But Jesus doesn't meet us on those terms. He wants to meet us on relational terms and talk it through and work it out. So then we get to this scenario at breakfast where there's a discussion, a face-to-face discussion with Peter and Jesus. And something really interesting happens where, again, God is recreating the story, retelling the script, rewriting it. So let's take a look. After breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, master, you know I love you. It's interesting here. 
Jesus is calling him Simon, not Peter. Peter is his name that he that he got got named, but he started off as Simon, and Simon was his name when he first called him. So Jesus is going right back to the start with him because he knows that Peter's been replaying this video in his mind. He goes, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And Peter replies, yes, master, you know I love you. You know, it's his moment to tell Jesus, I do love you. It's this moment of restoration. It's this moment of making everything right again. But then Jesus goes, feed my lambs. And then he asked a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Can you imagine if you've, if you've really hurt someone and they ask you, do you love me? And you're just going to go, yes. And um, you feel like the relationship is being restored, but then they ask you again. It's like, don't you believe me? It's like, yes, I love you. And this is what um, Peter's feeling. He's like, yes, master, you know I love you. And Jesus said, shepherd my sheep. And then he said it a third time. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now, Peter was really upset. This is the videotape and the script that he's been playing in his mind for the last month. You know, I failed Jesus. I've let him go on. He he doesn't know how much I care for him. And now he's just asking me again and again. And then he just is like, come on, Jesus. Peter was so upset that he asked him for the third time, do you love me? So he answered. He goes, Master, you know everything there is to know. You've got to know that I love you. Can you imagine how restoring that is to be able to say, come on, you know I love you. You know I care for you. And in that, it's like I've stuffed up. I made a mistake but I still love you and you know everything. You know everything I've done. You gave me that look. You know what happened. You know what went wrong. You did that, but still, come on, come on, Jesus, you've got to know. So now we're not, we're not trying to cover up anymore. We're, we're talking about the real stuff. You know everything there is to know. He's being really vulnerable now. And he goes, you've got to know that I love you. And then Jesus said something interesting. He said, feed my sheep. Have you noticed that all the way through these three questions of do you love me, Jesus has been responding, feed my lambs, shepherd my sheep, feed my sheep. It's like the whole time Jesus was building up this argument to say, I still love you. I still believe in you, even when you don't. Because Peter's just spent the last, through that, from that denial until this point, he spent all this time discounting himself. He spent all this time telling himself, I'm not good enough. The three years meant nothing. All that calling that God had on my life, all that purpose that he had for me, I've done it. I'm no good anymore. Um, It's like I've got this big black mark on my name. I can't do it anymore. But Jesus is doing something different. He's saying, no, I still want you to do this. I've still got things for you to do. I've still got calling for you. You haven't stuffed up. This is um, this 
is a, a life-defining moment for him that's undoing all of the identity that Peter had been building up and undoing in his mind. You know, we can spend three years with someone uh, and they can be encouraging and encouraging and encouraging and then there's one thing that they say that's discouraging and that's what we hook on and that's what we believe. So Jesus said, feed my sheep. I'm telling you the very truth now. When you were young and you dressed yourself and went and went wherever you wished. But when you get old, you'll have to stretch out your hands while someone else dresses you and takes you to where you do not want to go. He said this to hint at the kind of death which Peter would glorify God. And then he commanded me, follow me. The exact same thing he said to him three years ago. It was like Jesus was creating a whole new start for him and just going through all of the psych, uh, untangling all the psychological thinking that Jesus, uh, that Peter had been going through. You know, Jesus was slowly detangling it by creating similar circumstances, by uh, reminding him that he's called and reminding him that he loves him and reminding him that he accepts him. Three times Peter denied Jesus and three times Jesus got him to say that he loved him. Jesus got Peter to a point where he would be vulnerable enough to talk about the failure. You know, God will always bring you back on the basis of relationship, not rules and regulations. Jesus was most interested here in restoring the relational, the face-to-face aspect here with Peter. He wanted them to be in relationship. He wanted to restore the relationship. He didn't want them to go through this grand divorce because things got miscommunicated and things went wrong. He wanted to restore this relationship with Jesus and Jesus was doing everything to make that again. So Jesus was reminding Peter of who he was again. By saying, follow me, he reminded him of the start. He's saying, I'm in here with you. It's okay. All of that hasn't changed. I'm still calling you. It's interesting because if you go back over uh, Peter's life, particularly to that conversation when Jesus told him that he was going to deny him. It was actually at the Last Supper. And um, they'd had this conversation. Judas had just walked out of the room and um, Jesus was just busy telling all of the disciples, you are the guys that have stuck with me. And that's when Peter came in and said, um, you know, well, I would never deny you. Like, yes, I agree with you, Jesus, I would never deny you. So you sort of go back and you see how things move forward and they, they uh, implicate things. We get the whole picture of how Peter might have been feeling. And in that time, just before, before Peter said, you know, um, you know, we, we've, Peter, um, Peter, just before Peter said that he would, that he would never deny Jesus, um, Jesus actually had a word for him. It's in Luke 21, 22. 
31 to 34. He said, Simon, stay on your toes. Satan has tried his best to separate all of you from me like chaff from wheat. And then he says this, Simon, I've prayed for you in particular that you do not give in or give out. When you have come through the time of testing, turn to your companions and give them a fresh start. It was like Jesus was saying before even they had the conversation about the denial, I know you're going to go through some stuff. I know it. If you look in the NIV version of the same verse, Jesus says, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Interesting, isn't it? And when you have turned back, Jesus knew he was going to run away. Jesus knew he was going to make a mistake. And before it even happened, Jesus is speaking into it so that there can be restoration. I wonder what Jesus is already speaking into your life to prepare you for what's coming ahead, the times where you might feel that you're failing God because he speaks words of life into you. And when we're, when we're going through a hard time, go back and think about what has Jesus said to you? What are those words that have dropped out of the Bible that have spoken to you? And hang on to them. And if you find yourself feeling like all of that is written off, all of that is no good anymore, well, remember, it is the word of God and the word of God does what it's supposed to do. So if God has spoken something over your life, it's going to happen. And it's interesting here because it says, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. In all of that running away, his faith did not fail. He was running away, yes. He was feeling shame, yes. But he still had faith the whole time because he still believed in Jesus the whole time. He still believed Jesus was the Son of God the whole time. He just thought that their relationship was disconnected. But he still believed in who Jesus was. And isn't that the case when we fail or we feel like we've failed God? It doesn't mean that we don't think God's God anymore, that we don't believe in him, that we don't have faith in him, but we feel like we're the problem. And, you know, we are the problem. But that doesn't mean your faith has failed. It just means that you're working it out at a deeper level because you're having to reconcile yourself. You're having to accept forgiveness from God. You're having to work things out, work at your relationship with God a lot more. It's taking your faith deeper. So Jesus prayed, I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. It's interesting that Jesus knows the mistakes that we're going to make before we make them. If we look through this pattern of talk as we go backward and forwards through the story, you can see Jesus knew it was going to happen. And Jesus knows when you're going to fail. And he also wants to restore you through that. The gospel is there for your whole life. Salvation is there for your whole life. 
He keeps on forgiving you. He keeps on restoring you. He keeps on taking you back to that cross. But that's the whole point, isn't it? It takes us to the cross. Your sin is the reason he died on the cross. He knew you couldn't do it yourself. So Jesus is always making a way for you. I'm sure when Jesus was on that cross, he was thinking about Peter at that time. I think he was thinking about you too and everything that you've done wrong, everything that you've failed at. And he made a way for you where we couldn't do it ourselves. So even when we make mistakes, even when we make failures, God can still turn the story around. He can still turn the story back to who he says you are. If we look at Matthew 16, you know, way back in those three years, you see Jesus and Peter having a face-to-face conversation again. Um, and they're, they're talking about, they're having this discussion about, well, who do you think I am? And, and Peter, Peter comes up with the answer. He says, you're the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And when he says that, Jesus comes back to him and he's like, good on you, Peter, you have, you have got it. And you, it's like, you know, he got the lottery answer and, you know, he's feeling pretty good. But Jesus came back and said, God bless you, Simon, son of Jonah. You didn't get that answer out of the books or from teachers. My Father in heaven, God himself, let you in on this secret of who I really am. Now, I'd be pretty, if I was one of the disciples, I'd be pretty chuffed that that's the, that's the response I got. It's like, you get a gold star today, um, which is pretty different from the failure feeling. So he's got the, the gold star. And, he, and then Jesus says, and now I'm going to tell you who you are, who you really are. You are Peter, a rock. This is the rock on which I will put together my church, a church so expansive with energy that not even the gates of hell will be able to keep it out. If I could have the, um, the worship band come up, that would be great. Um, but can you imagine Peter right now? He would have spent all his time thinking, well, that calling... You know, when he's feeling that failure, he would have felt like that calling is gone. That calling is no more. I've stuffed it up. God can't use me anymore. How many times do we feel like that? But Jesus says, Peter, you are a rock, and on this rock I will put together my church. And then we see in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, Peter getting up in front of all of these people and 3,000 people coming to God on that one day, uh, doing it bravely, doing it the way that God wanted to after he failed. So failure is not a time for God to write you off. It's a time for you to work through things and go deeper into God, understand his forgiveness more, understand the relationship he wants to have with you more. Have you failed? Do you feel like you've failed God? Do you ever feel like you're not good enough? Do you ever feel like you've stuffed it up? Do you ever feel like 
God could not possibly use me. We all feel this at one stage or another. It's part of the shame that's come into the world. That shame we feel when we want to cover up, when we want to pretend. But God doesn't meet us at a point of pretending. He meets us at a point of where we really are.